Hey everybody, it's Lon Seidman. It's time once again for your weekly wrap up. And this week I'm gonna give you a review of the Pfizer vaccine. I got my second shot the other day and I wanted to talk about why I chose to get a vaccine and what to expect if you decide to get one too. Let's get to it. Now, before we get into my experience with the vaccine, I thought I would talk about why I decided to get vaccinated. We all have a choice as to whether or not to get a shot, and I thought I would share with you the things that I thought about in making the decision to get vaccinated. The first is my age and risk level. I am 44 and a half, almost 45, and that puts me in a slightly higher risk category than I may have been in 10 years ago or 20 years ago. I have a number of friends who got pretty sick from COVID-19. Sadly, a few acquaintances of mine passed away from it. So it's certainly a real risk factor to consider. And that was a chief one, uh, just the experience that people around me had. Uh, From a risk standpoint, I'm in pretty good health, but I do have a relatively minor little cardiac thing. Nothing serious at the moment, but my heart occasionally will jump out of beat. It's kind of a tachycardia thing. My father has it. My grandfather had it. And every once in a while, I'll feel a good thump in my heart. That's why I got the Apple Watch to occasionally do an ECG every once in a while to make things, make sure things are okay. Uh, I do have a cardiologist that I see on a regular basis. I've been fully checked out top to bottom, and I'm in good shape. I don't need any treatment. Uh, but at some point down the road, I might. And I've been reading about how COVID-19 might impact people with conditions similar to mine, and I wanted to alleviate some of that risk. Another thing that I was thinking about was that I don't know whether or not I've had COVID-19 in the past. And those of you who have been following me for a while uh, have been following the uh, effort that I've been making to try to figure out if I caught COVID-19 at CES back in January of 2020. So many of us came back sick, and you can read a great article about this in American Public Radio Reports uh, report on uh, what a lot of us CES people experienced. And just about everybody that I came in contact with got sick to some degree or another. I was in pretty rough shape when I got back from that show. I had a 103.5 fever when I walked in the door. That's like 39.7 Celsius. So I was pretty sick and I was able to keep the fever at bay with ibuprofen, but it took about a week because after the ibuprofen would wear off, the fever would spike back up again. I had a few other symptoms that you might've heard about from COVID infections, but I could not verify that I got sick. I took an antibody test about this time last year, a few months after that initial infection. I took another more accurate test that uses ELISA testing methods that came out negative. And I also recently did a T-cell test uh, from Adaptive Biotechnologies. I'll talk more about that towards the end of the video. And all of those tests came back negative. So I had no definitive proof to say that I got COVID-19 at CES. And there's also community responsibilities to think about because our schools here in town have been open all year. And even though I've been mostly staying at home and avoiding unnecessary contact with people, my daughter goes to school every day and has contact with all of her classmates and the staff members there. And they're doing a very good job of keeping people cohorted. But it's a greater number of people that she's coming into contact with. And even though her risk level as an individual is low, she might come in contact with another student whose risk level is also low, but could spread the virus to a grandparent that might be living in their home or something along those lines. So I've been very much thinking about not only my risk, but also the risk to others and reducing the likelihood of transmission if we can do that. So that was another reason uh, to factor in for my vaccine. And the last reason was the science, the efficacy and the safety so far 
of the mRNA vaccines. You know, there was a lot of people that got vaccinated with this technology ahead of me, and so far it's been looking pretty safe and uh, very effective based on some of the numbers that we're seeing here in Connecticut and throughout the world. So let's take a look now at how the mRNA vaccine works. Now, I do want to let you know out of the gate here that I am not a biologist or an epidemiologist or anything else like that. So we're going to be doing a real top level thing here. I did, though, take a semester of biology in college, and I did it over a summer section at my school where you could take a couple of classes for a month and a half and get ahead on your fall semester. And so that summer, I took biology, and I also took computer science at the same time. And it was really interesting to see how, to some degree, code for a computer was kind of similar to the code of biology, which, of course, is DNA and RNA. And at the time, uh, there was a lot of development going on in mapping the human genome. We had a lot of exciting things to talk about in class, and it really got me interested in this topic, again, because there's so many similarities to what we know about computer code, which is something we talk about on this channel quite a bit. Now, what you're looking at here is a false color image of a COVID-19 virus particle. This green stuff here is called spike protein, and this has become very important for running COVID-19 tests to see if somebody's infected, but it's also important for the vaccine. And for the virus, it's also how it spreads so effectively because these proteins are really well matched to cells in the respiratory system, and the virus very easily latches onto those cells. And once it latches on, the RNA instruction set inside of the yellow blob here gets into the cell that it's infecting. And because our cells do not require any authentication to start making new proteins, it basically sees that RNA code from the virus and just starts making new viruses. These viruses can't spread on their own like bacteria can. They require a host cell in a human or an animal to spread. So when you get sick, you're actually getting sick from a virus that was produced inside somebody else's body. That's pretty gross, right? Now, in the past, what we've done for making vaccines is to, for the most part, grow them inside of chicken eggs. They take viruses, they inject them into an egg, the viruses replicate in the egg, and they either kill or disable the virus, and then you get these dead or disabled proteins injected into your arm. Now, the way the mRNA vaccines work is very different because this is now injecting code, RNA code. And what they've done is they've been able to grab that spike protein's code, the instructions to make it, they put it into a lipid particle, inject that into your arm, and then that lipid particle passes the mRNA code into your cell, which then dutifully starts creating spike protein, but not the rest of the virus. So as these spike proteins start to pop out on the surface of your cells, your immune system kicks into gear and eliminates the spike protein and builds antibodies and T-cell defenses so that when the real virus comes around, it's able to detect it and either take it out before it becomes an infection or it gives you a very mild infection because the immune system knows how to latch on to portions of it already. And because you're using the exact code of the virus to make the spike protein, these things can be very effective. And it sounds pretty simple, but the complexity in developing this technology 
was immense. And there's a great article in the New York Times about the woman who uh, basically is credited for kind of inventing this entire concept. It was certainly not something to be invented. It was a known process, but she really believed that there was a way to inject RNA into people and create vaccines from it. And she was really ahead of her time because there was a lot of technologies that had to be invented in order for all of this to work at all. And for many years, uh, Katie Carrico here was kind of not discredited, but wasn't able to really get a lot of funding and attention to her research until I think a lot of other technologies got invented that made the work that she devoted her life to something that could be turned into a vaccine that can be produced at scale. So let's briefly take a look at some of the technologies that all came together to make this happen. Genome sequencing and all the advancements related to it is a big one here. Uh, Things can get sequenced very accurately and very quickly now, uh, so fast that Moderna, who makes a competing mRNA vaccine to the one that I just got from Pfizer, was able to get one of their first candidates developed in just about two days because they were able to get the code of the virus and begin figuring out how to manufacture portions of it in a cell with their mRNA technology. Uh, This, by the way, is part of the code of the SARS-CoV-2 virus that's publicly available on the internet, which, of course, is another groundbreaking technology that is allowing a very rapid sharing of information. Uh, So if you wanted to take a look at the code of the COVID-19 virus, or at least one of the first ones that they sequenced, you can go to this website on one of the U.S. government web pages and get the whole thing and start playing around with it yourself. I hope you don't do that, but you'll need a lot of advanced equipment, which most of us don't have, but it's out there uh, for researchers to take a look at. Uh, There's also a lot of collaboration going on internationally through websites like virological.org, where they're tracking variants, for example, and seeing all of the differences in the sequence of the virus as it continues to spread throughout the globe. And they're able to very quickly uh, put out the revised sequences of different viruses that are in the wild to figure out where we need to go from a policy standpoint or whether or not we need to adjust the vaccine code to uh, match new variants that might get around it, for example. All of this is happening because we've got the internet and the ability to share information so efficiently. And the last big development here relates to lipids that deliver the mRNA to the cell, because without those lipids, as you'll see in chemical and engineering news here, uh, the vaccine would not have been possible because you've got to protect the very fragile mRNA uh, before it gets into the cell. And these lipids allow that to happen. And getting those lipids developed and working in a way that you can manufacture at scale was very challenging. So here you can see, just like many other technologies that we enjoy, that independent development in specific areas can come together and make something else possible, uh, which is what we got here with the vaccine. Last thing to note is the safety and efficacy of the vaccine. It's been administered now hundreds of millions of times, and so far so good, both in their initial studies, but now in real world data. Uh, What they're finding with both the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines is that although it's not going to be 100% effective at preventing infection, it does appear to be 100% effective in preventing severe disease or death. Now, we still have to wait for more data to come back, but it looks like in the real world they're seeing a lot of what they've seen with this vaccine uh, in its trial period. 
Uh, here's some data from Israel, which had the widest rollout. I think they were using the Pfizer vaccine almost exclusively. And you can see once they got everybody fully vaccinated, the numbers just dropped off and they've largely returned to uh, normal with all of their activities here. We're going to talk more about the variants and things to worry about in a minute, but it looks as though in the short term here, uh, it is working very effectively at reducing the risk level of the virus out there and allowing economies to get back to normal. Uh, So now the long-awaited experience review here of what it was like for me to get my shot. Well, I got two shots three weeks apart, which is how this is supposed to go. And I got my shot at a local pharmacy. And this is one thing that I would really advise all of you because today in the United States is a day that it's available for everybody. Uh, And this is a tech channel, so I'm going to use a very tech reference here. I would approach getting your appointment the same way you would approach going after a game console or some other hot piece of technology. You've got to be very diligent and you've got to look everywhere. And it's not just the official vaccine sites that your local government is talking about. It's also the pharmacies like the CVSs and the Walgreens. And in my case, there was a small uh, pharmacy chain just in my immediate area that was certified uh, fully legal and everything else to deliver the Pfizer vaccine. And I got on the list there and I actually got an appointment uh, very quickly because they had a bunch of extra doses that got delivered that they didn't have appointments for. So I got in about a week earlier than I thought I would. So if you really stay on it and just keep checking those websites and checking with those local pharmacies, uh, you will get one very quickly. The supply is definitely there. Uh, So just be diligent and don't get frustrated. Just keep checking, and I think you'll uh, get good luck with it. Now, the first shot wasn't too bad. Uh, And actually, if you don't like needles, it's not as bad as a flu shot, in my opinion, because they don't inject as much material into your arm as a flu shot does. And the needle isn't very thick either. So it didn't even hurt that much to get the shot both times. It was probably one of the, never never pleasant getting a shot, but it was less unpleasant (laughs) perhaps than some of the other ones that I had. Uh, So my initial symptoms about, you know, 12 to 24 hours after the first shot was a very sore arm and I was pretty tired. And I didn't realize how sore my arm got until I tried to pick a plate off the the cupboard. I picked it up and I just dropped it because my arm just felt like concrete. Um, So you will have a pretty sore arm for sure. Uh, Again, I was tired. I had a slight amount of dizziness. I was slightly achy. I didn't have a fever, though, and I felt a lot like the way you feel after you get over the flu, and that was only for about maybe 18 hours or so. It was not bad at all. I was a little foggy, but really no worse for wear, and I was pretty much normal by day two. Now, the second shot is the doozy for many people, and I definitely had a bigger reaction to the second one than the first one. And the way this works is that when you get that first shot, your body's going to produce the spike protein. Your immune system is going to see it and start producing antibodies. And unlike a natural infection, you're not going to have any more particles produced after the initial generation of production because this mRNA doesn't replicate. So what happens is your body's on the lookout for it, but it's not seeing any more. So it kind of goes dormant, but, you know, is being aware that there might be something else coming. So when you get that second shot three weeks later... That's when the immune system really kicks in and starts reacting in a more inflammatory way. Uh, The best way to describe how I felt was 24 hours after my shot, I felt sick without the ick. I didn't feel as bad as I did when I got back from CES, uh, but I was achy a little bit. Not a lot, but achy. I was tired with chills. I had a fever that was about 3 degrees Fahrenheit more than normal. I got up to about 100 degrees Fahrenheit 
which for me is a fever. I'm typically in the 97 uh, degree range Fahrenheit. Uh, I did have a slight headache for most of the day, but by the next morning, I was better. I went to bed early, I slept really well, and when I woke up, I felt good as new. I didn't feel like I was even getting over anything. It just was gone, uh, and that's the nature of how this works. And now I've got to just wait another week and a half or so, and I'll be at a point where I am fully vaccinated. So it's going to be different for every person. My wife had a different reaction than I did, so she started reacting a little earlier than I did. She was shivering in the middle of the night but never had a fever. Uh, Other friends that I had reacted to the first shot, and some of them actually had been infected with COVID previously. So I think that was uh, the immune system basically reacting to what it had already seen versus people that had never had it before. Um, So your mileage will vary greatly, but I would expect something along the lines of what I experienced. And this is about what most of my friends experienced on that second shot too. So now let's talk about the unknown. Are we going to need boosters for this thing? And I would say at some point, it's probably likely that you're going to need a booster. And this I would equate to how we get a flu shot every year. And the reason is, is that the virus will change because evolution is a thing, especially with viruses that are doing nothing but replicating constantly. Uh, We are all examples of evolutionary pressure at work. Our entire species developed in response to things happening in the environment. And what we're doing with these vaccines is that we are basically locking the door on the effectiveness of the spike protein as it currently exists. And I would expect that over time, Uh, you will see the virus evolve to try to get around the vaccine's effectiveness and we'll see the spike protein change. We're already seeing that to some degree uh, with many of the variants that are coming about. So what is next for vaccines? Well, I think this mRNA technology is here to stay. Uh, We're seeing how effective it is, at least initially with the COVID-19 crisis. And I have no doubt that the pharmaceutical companies that have invested a lot of money into the infrastructure for this current crisis will likely continue making investments in it because it is so efficient and it can deliver results very effectively. And I think that is going to, I think, drive the business case for further development of mRNA vaccinations. This is going to put a lot of pressure on the regulatory system because it moves a lot slower than development can move on the vaccine itself. And so I think you're going to see a lot of pressure between government regulators and vaccine developers as this continues. But there's a lot of potential here for wide-scale vaccination and then even small-scale individual therapies like cancer and other things. So this is going to be a really exciting time, I think, to be working in the medical field, especially on cancer and viruses and other types of infections. Uh, One other thing to note is that there is a lot of development going on on the testing side. Now, as I mentioned a few months ago, I did one of these T-cell tests from a company called Adaptive Biotechnologies. And what's neat about their method here is that they're using another independently developed technology, artificial intelligence, to determine whether or not you have long-term immunity to COVID-19. And what they're doing is taking a blood draw and then sequencing every T cell that they can find in that blood sample. And then they compare all of those sequences to the sequences of people that they know have had COVID-19, and they look to see what sequences those people have in common. And if you have enough of those uh, results in common, then you have a positive test. It's pretty cool. And again, the power of artificial intelligence and its ability to 
find patterns in very complex sets of data allows this kind of thing to happen. Now, I tried to get them on for an interview. They didn't want to do it, uh, but they did answer my questions via email. And one of the neat things that's come out of this work that they're doing is they're finding all the ways the body reacts to a viral infection. And with COVID-19, they found that it's not just the spike protein that the immune system is latching onto. And of course, T cells are your body's long-term immunity. And in many cases, these T cells can retain memory of a past infection for decades, if not your whole life. So there's a lot to learn here. And this kind of test can help inform how to make other mRNA vaccines. So again, all these different technologies just coming together here. So that is going to do it for this review of my Pfizer vaccine experience and all the things that went into deciding to get one. I hope it was helpful for you. And I would love to hear about your experiences down in the comments below. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This week's wrap-up was being brought to you by all of you, and I've got a bunch of super chatters to thank who contributed during one of our live streams. They include Joey Ortiz, Grayson Petty, Robert Van Etta, Clean 937 Samuel, Kazi Houdini, Houdini Unchained, and my tech guy, Tim. We also have a bunch of new supporters on the channel. Richard uh, Kuchars and Rick Harmon contributed via the donor box page. Grayson Petty uh, signed up as a supporter on our YouTube membership page. And BML Zootown subscribed on Floatplane. I want to thank everyone who contributed this week and everyone who's been contributing on an ongoing basis and all of you who watch on a regular basis too because all of those things equal channel growth. And if you want to support the channel, you can. You can go to lon.tv support and contribute via our donor box page. We also support the YouTube membership program and Floatplane. You can find all of my other channels here on screen. We're going to have this up on my podcast later this week. If you'd prefer to listen to it as a podcast, it's available for you there. So subscribe to it. I'm trying to build that up a little bit more. You can engage with the channel via our email list or our Facebook group. And then we've got the store where I sell previously used items at lower prices than new. And these are the actual items that we reviewed on the channel. There's only one of everything. So sign up for an email alert so that you can get notified whenever I list a new item that I'm trying to get rid of, and we'll be getting some more stuff up there in the next week or two. That is going to do it for this week's weekly wrap-up. Thank you all for your continued viewership and support, and I am looking forward to getting back out there again and maybe doing a little bit of traveling uh, once my vaccination kicks in and the numbers go down. That's going to do it for now. Until next time, this is Lon Seibin. Thanks for watching. This channel is brought to you by the Lon.TV supporters, including Gold Level supporters Chris Allegretta, Tom Albrecht, Mark Bollinger, Sergio Morales, Mark Dell, Jim Callagher, and Stephen Sue. If you want to help the channel, you can by contributing as little as a dollar a month. Head over to lon.tv slash support to learn more.
And don't forget to subscribe. Visit lon.tv slash s.